0: Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Lamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Well, good morning, guys. Uh, A lot of changes in the last couple of uh, days here, so let me uh, give you a quick update on a few things. One is, yesterday we had um, our very first biblical conversation about mental wellness. We had 55 people that showed up and were engaged in that. It's something that we're going to probably continue to follow up in the future, so just uh, to those who organized that was great. Spring cleanup next Saturday, keep track of that. But here's the big issue, Um, because of some of the changes going into place, starting next week. Uh, We're going to change our protocols, and we're going to require full hazmat suits before you come inside. (laughs) All right, fine, all right. Um, Actually, beginning next Sunday, we are going to make a shift, uh, and we're going to be going to masks optional. Now, listen to me on this. So far, you have been very thoughtful and considerate of others and protecting others. And so I would ask you to pay attention to that. If you are someone who should still be wearing a mask, wear a mask. If you're someone who is concerned about things, wear a mask, Okay? I myself, just so you know, uh, and I have been vaccinated. So next week, I'll be going without a mask. I'm not telling you what to do. I am not a doctor. I've never played one on TV. And I can't even remember the last time I stayed in the Holiday Inn Express, Okay? But I'm giving you a guideline of where I'm at with that, Um, but beginning next week, not today, but next week, because we want to be respectful of people who showed up under certain expectations and understandings. So we're asking, please, that today you would still wear a mask. But beginning next week, we're going to set that aside um, and leave that to your own uh, discretion. Please, again, just be conscious and considerate. We still have individuals, we have several individuals that are very seriously ill right now with COVID, And so we want to be respectful of that as we move forward. Um, Children and youth are going to continue to wear masks until we have some more understanding of what's taking place. So that's going to stay static, but that can change quickly. So just so you know, um, also beginning not next Sunday, but um, as of Memorial Day, we will not be having a registration any longer. Now we're going to still hold it for the next time or so because our children's areas need some understanding of what's taking place. So if you still do that the next week or so, but beginning Memorial Day, that'll be our first day that we will not have any kind of registration happening and going forward. Um, And one little quick note I'd say, too, as well, and I've said this before, I'll say it again. uh, As the schools are working this stuff out, and all those of you that are parents, please be sensitive to the school officials. They are in the same situation we've been in of trying to discern things. They're not mean, horrible people. Well, most of them aren't anyway. Um, but they aren't. They're people who are trying to be responsible. So please be thoughtful of how you engage them and uh, and what they're having to process and work through as well. We're going to be having post service prayer in the atrium following this as well. Okay, so that's kind of where we're at, guys. Again, please if you'd respect things while you're on location today, I would appreciate that. All right. Um, we are finalizing a series here today entitled um, "A Different Way to Identify." And before we get into this, let's take a moment. Father, we come before you and we're grateful, Lord. You have given us grace and provision in so many ways. And as we begin to see the end of this long tunnel that we've been in, um, we're grateful, Lord, that you have uh, upheld us in this time. Lord, for those who have given, whether online or in person today, in uh, one of the boxes in the back or so, we ask your blessing upon that, Lord. We ask that, um, that uh, we just be aware as we do these things that there's no compulsion on this. That's something that we freely respond to you in your grace. And then today, Lord, I pray that you speak to us in this time and in this gathering through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, catching a theme here, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. A different way, a different way to identify. To get some of the background of this, I want to offer to you a concept of, of, of how to approach life and reality. Um, I present it to you, as it was presented to me, uh, in a class I had years ago, uh, as a triangle with basically three levels, with worldview at the foundation of the triangle, values at the middle level, and then behavior is at the top. And the idea is that one should evaluate what is true and good as worldview, and then build values from that, and then allow that evaluation to shape behavior. But oftentimes what we're finding, especially even with Christians today, is that we are living upside down. We unthinkingly embrace behaviors common in our culture. Those behaviors shape our values, and then we end up ultimately with non-Christian worldview or perspective. There is a sociologist named Philip Reif He describes the era when the Christian movement began as what he referred to as um, the first culture. It was dominated by a pantheon of gods. And uh, the followers were content with with their religion and their beliefs, not particularly missionary towards the larger world. And so you had this pantheon of gods who were really many times just a reflection of human beings. They were just as immoral and capricious as human beings were. Zeus, Apollo, all the rest that were part of that. This was the first culture. But then he said the Christian movement sparked a monotheistic and evangelistic second culture, which swept away the first culture. Following so far? Swept away that culture. Now we are in what Reef calls the third culture, which an Australian pastor, Stephen McAlpine, describes as, quote, hermetically sealed off from anything transcendent. It recognizes only the horizontal identity structures and not vertical ones. Here is where meaning is determined, and here is where authority lies. It is ours to construct and deconstruct. It goes on to say this third culture is also highly evangelistic and actively hostile to second culture values, Christian values. For example, it considers sexual freedom and authenticity to be vital to personal and social flourishing. Biblical morality is therefore seen as dangerous to society and potentially deadly, particularly to those who are of LGBTQ or others who are exploring those things. And so this, this attack upon the culture, the Christian culture from this third culture, Is also taken with regard to abortion, euthanasia, or any other personal freedoms that are threatened by biblical faith. This new religion, this rival gospel, um, the church has never encountered anything before. The world has never encountered. And it requires faith statements and belief statements that are just as rooted in faith as anything else would be. And it seeks nothing less than to replace Christianity with its own secular version for a better future. And as part of that, there are a variety of things that are thrown at us. There is the morality claim, which is that all morality is socially constructed, and yet we're still supposed to work for justice. The truth narrative is that all truth claims are socially constructed, and yet science is our salvation. The freedom narrative That as long as I'm not harming someone, I should actually be free to live my life the way that I choose. The happiness narrative is that you should never sacrifice your happiness for anybody else. In the end, you can't sacrifice your happiness for other people. And that finally reaches the point of the identity narrative. And the identity narrative is basically that you and I, we got to be true to ourselves. You have to look inside, see who you are. And then be true to yourself based upon that. And this identity narrative is what has driven things for the last decade or so in culture and increasingly within the church and within our own minds. Um, Paul Tripp, a pastor in the Southern Baptist Convention, says I think the number one issue facing the church is identity. I think the further we get away from a biblical worldview worldview, the further we get away from these wonderful categories that God has given us that help us make sense of who we are and who we are in relationship to one another. Who we are with gender, sex, you have this horrible loss of these categories and then people grabbing for other categories. I think it's one of the reasons he said as to why we have all the tribalism that we have now because being part of a tribe gives me identity. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is the meaning of my life. And this loss of identity, this terrifying sense comes into a place of lostness that goes down deep even in the very soul of who we are. A lot of the um, thinking and theories and things that are offered today tie into this and separate us. Uh, Some of the thought goes way back, and and I'm I'm not trying to criticize a specific issue, but I'll go to one of the worldviews that has shaped this past century, that of Marxism. In Marx's thought, um, basically you have a struggle between the, the working class and the wealthy, and his thing was that the only way to resolve that is revolution. The lower class has to overthrow the upper class and in that way you can transform society and justice will prevail. It was in this context that he called religion the opiate of the people because it it made them satisfied with life here with the expectation of what is to come and he viewed it as an absolute enemy. Christianity is an absolute enemy to the revolution that they wanted to form it. Um, In doing so, the Soviet Union was formed, uh, Communist China, uh, other places... Um, there were more deaths in the 100 plus million, 150 million in the past century of time through this belief system than in all the wars that were fought ever in the cause of religion or other things of this nature. And this view enters into other areas in our society today, whether it's in politics or race or anything else, attempting to divide us and say that our primary identification should be this or that. It should be whether your politics on whatever side, that should be your primary identity. You should be willing to fight to the death over that issue, or your ethnicity should be the number one thing that identifies you. And one of the questions I'd ask you to David is, what is your identity rooted in? What is your primary identity, and what flows from that? Because whatever your identity is also going to shape your worldview, which will shape your values and then will shape your behaviors. Today, we're told that identity of one type or another, that we ultimately decide that even down to the point of our sexuality. That it's all internal. And again, with this view, there's no possibility of reconciliation. It's all about revolution. It's all about separation. Now, let's be clear. This does not mean that we can't recognize harms and ills and things that are wrongly done. But the biblical worldview was a radically different perspective in a time when tribalism reigned over the entire world, when oppression was very real in the sense of causing of death and loss of specific freedoms instead of the theoreticals that we often talk about here today or in the nature that they come in today. In this passage we just read, it's saying that there's one body, one spirit, one hope it talks one, 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 one. It's talking about unity that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. That if, there's, if we're committed to Christ, if we recognize the reality of who he is, that, that has an impact upon us, that changes dramatically. Now, I played a clip for you last week. I want to play another one that's part of the same conversation with a man named Jordan Peterson, a clinical psychologist out of uh, Toronto. Um, And again, I'm not embracing any of his politics or any of the things that he would have been held to. Instead, what catches me is that here is this obviously gifted man as far as intelligence and articulate who is being brought to a shattering transformation in how he views the world, and ultimately how he views himself. Jordan Peterson, for just a minute or two here, quick.
0: The difference, and C.S. Lewis pointed this out as well, the difference between those mythological gods and Christ was that there's a, there's a representation of, there's a historical representation of his, of, of his existence as well. Now, you can debate whether or not that's genuine, you can debate about whether or not he actually lived and whether there's credible objective evidence for that, but it doesn't matter in some sense because this, well, it does, but there's a sense in which it doesn't matter because there's still a historical story. And so what you have in the figure of Christ is an actual person who actually lived plus a myth. And in some sense, Christ is the union of those two things. The problem is, is I probably believe that. But I don't know, I don't, I'm amazed at my own belief and I don't (laughs) understand it. Like, because I've seen, sometimes the objective world and the narrative world touch, you know, that's Jungian synchronicity. And I've seen that many times in my own life. And so in some sense, I believe it's undeniable. You know, we have a narrative sense of the world. For me, that's been the world of morality. That's the world that tells us how to act. It's real. Like, we treat it like it's real. It's not the objective world. But the narrative and the objective world touch. And the ultimate example of that, in principle, is supposed to be Christ. But I don't know what to... That seems to me oddly plausible. Yeah. But I still don't know what to make of it. it's too at partly because it 's too terrifying a reality to fully believe. I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it.
1: I know some of the language maybe doesn't connect with you. he's using specific terms that uh, um, come out of a certain genre. But what you can pick up is here's somebody who um, has applied or attempted to apply a very ethical life to what they've done, but it's been without God. And as they've continued on this journey, they're in, coming into contact with Christ, and it's transforming how they think, how they approach things. They said, "I don't even know what that means." If if you really truly believe that He's the Son of God, the terrifying thing of transformation that that happens inside it changes your very identity. It took people who were revolutionaries, individuals whose goal was to kill Roman soldiers, and put them side by side with individuals who facilitated the Roman oppression by the money lending and, and, the, and the taxation that would occur, It put them side by side. Ignorant fishermen, side by side with one of the most brilliant Pharisees and intellectuals of the day in person of Paul. It brought these individuals together. Slaves and masters were in the same room. People of different ethnicities and politics and all the rest were part of that, came together. This is what is being spoken about in Ephesians, and it breaks it down even further. Jesus tells us in Matthew 28-19, go and make disciples of all what? Nations. Baptizing them. That there's supposed to be a reaching out to all nations and then a new community being formed out of that that does not recognize national boundaries. We have friends and brothers and sisters that we work with, whether it's been in Russia or whether it's been in Central America or whether it's been into that godless place to the north, Canada. We've been to all those things. I say that in friendliness to my Canadian friends but we're brothers and we're sisters. There's a different identity. that goes beyond nationalism. In Galatians chapter 3 verses 26 and 28, Paul picks up on the same theme. He says, in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Therefore there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. He's not denying these categories or the issues that come with those categories. The realities of being a woman in a society that did not view women well, or of being slave in a society where there was not freedom, it doesn't deny those things and doesn't say that we shouldn't address those issues. In fact, in the early church, you had at one point in time, the widows of, the, of, of, of one group, the Greeks were not being treated the same as the Jewish ones. And the answer to the church was not to form a committee. It was to say, let's put everyone in charge who's, who's Greek. Let's let them take care of it then and resolve the situation. We trust that as we do that, they'll not only equitably deal with that, but they'll equitably deal with our own people and that, our own ethnicity. There was a trust. There was a unity. It went beyond nationality, beyond ethnicity and gender. It went into family even. This is a terrifying phrase, this next one. Luke chapter 14 verse 26, if anyone doesn't come to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, you have even their own life? Such a person can't be my disciple. This is a passage right here that that, that can end things. Now most would say that he's speaking in hyperbole. He doesn't mean that, that there's actually a point in time where we need to hate our family. What he's saying though is that in the priority of identifications, that the first identity needs to be in Christ. Everything else is seen through that filter in talking with a friend recently on this, and we were discussing, he said, well, what would be your second identity? And that caught me, and I thought, let me process that, because my first identity is being a Christian. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't say that from the sense of, my first identity is being the most righteous man on the planet. Not a chance. But what defines not only who I am, but how I see things around me, is through the eyes of Christ and through the eyes of Scripture. And that challenges me. That brings me up short on my shortcomings at times. What is a second identity? We can have all sorts of different ones. It can be father. It can be mother. It can be as a brother or a sister, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife. There can be ethnic aspects or political aspects, but for the most part, those items, I would suggest, need to be further down the list rather than bringing those up to the top and that be the lens through which we see things. But regardless of what your second or third or fourth or fifth identity is, the primary one, we're told, needs to be in Christ. It goes on in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus turns to his disciples he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And then he says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. Whoever tries to define their own identity, their own reality, they're going to lose it. But for whoever is willing to sacrifice or lay down their identity, their reality of who they are, as this man appears to be trying to do at this point in time, it, as we said before, shatters us and reshapes us. But our life is found in that moment of time. Now this particular passage is important because it goes beyond the national and the ethnic and the gender and the family to something deeply personal. And many times we forget this statement here about taking up your cross and follow me comes right after the verse before this was Peter saying that Jesus shouldn't die. And challenging him when he says, I'm going to go to the cross. The first just before this has Jesus turning and says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. That's always great to be called by Christ. You know, makes you question your value system and what position you just offered. You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In other words, Peter, you're not looking at this from a biblical worldview, you're not looking at this at the way I would look at it, you're looking at it the way you want to see it and you want to have it done you're coming from a personal sense of values and identity and perspective and he challenges him in the starkest language possible and it's after this that he says and turns to everyone else that's following the disciples says whoever wants to be my disciple you have to deny yourself your own perspectives on these things, take up your cross, follow me you're going to save your life this way lean into the way that I'm doing things because I'm doing a new thing, I'm forming a new way a kingdom of God that's supposed to change this sin broken world and I want you to be a part of it this goes to the heart of Jesus' prayer in John 17 I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one talking about the Father I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity And then here's the reason why. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as they have loved me. They'll know people will know, in other words, that God exists. They'll know that there is a a community to belong to that doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your social status. It doesn't matter your education, your beauty or your ugliness. That that while those things are still specific to you and we can look to those things and address those issues, that it doesn't stop anything from connecting together. That there's a unity in that. And that's going to change how the world views things. But instead... We've increasingly allowed our worldview to be flipped. We take on the behaviors of the world around us. It changes our values and then ultimately changes how we see things. No longer from a worldview, from Christ's view, but from the society around us. And so we express our outrage in violent ways over every new infraction that we see on the news or on social media, forgiving that we are neither to give in so easily to anger, according to First Corinthians and the book of James, nor to imitate the evils of outrage culture, cancel culture, or victim culture. We lose track of that. We fight and we quarrel with our opponents, forgetting that such skirmishes stem from selfish motives, as we find out in James chapter 4. And that quote, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, as we find in 2 Timothy. Kind to everyone. Kind to Democrats? Yes, kind to Democrats. Kind to those right wing Republicans? Yes, kind to those right wing Republicans. Kind to those who are the LGBT community? Absolutely. Kind to those who hate us? and think that we should be supplanted and removed. There's no exceptions given. But instead we mock those in opposition to us. We use the popular rhetoric of sarcastic memes, name condescending language, forgetting that we're supposed to communicate all things in love. Forgetting that there's a culture that is so lost in need of the very things that we allegedly have found in community, not just with one another, but with Christ that as it happens with Peterson seems to have, to have challenged and transformed and, and, and shattered us in reshaping how we view things. There was a young man a couple months back, my sons and I had gone out for lunch and there was this guy, just a great guy, really friendly, wonderful 20-something or so guy. We just got in great conversations back and forth and he kept coming back to our table and we kept engaging with quipping back and forth and he was all tatted up and and uh, um, he had one tattoo that particularly struck me though that was foremost on his arm and I got in a conversation with him about him and he talked to me about how he'd been in prison and about how some of the drug use he'd had in his past and other issues and he was a delightful character but clearly an extremely lost character I mean just a fun guy but totally lost this was the tattoo and I took a picture I asked him if I could take a picture of it So stuck in a generation where loyalty is just a tattoo, love is just a quote, and lying is the new truth. He had that tattooed onto his skin. This was his increasing view and worldview of shaping things. Let that stick in your head. Stuck in a generation, he's saying, where loyalty, (laughs) just a tattoo. Love, just a quote. Lying, that's the new truth your truth, my truth, their truth, denying the truth. Jesus says you have to lose yourself to find yourself, that you have to take up your cross and follow me. That directly goes against the identity narrative that says it's all about us, that we determine, we shape these things. It challenges us in regards to our personal choices, it challenges us in regards to our family structures, it challenges us in regards to our ethnicity, it challenges us in regards to our gender, in regards to our nationality, in all these different ways it challenges us. It was meant to transform and change us. A different way to identify. There is A culture of a pantheon of gods rooted in naturalism that was swept away by the truth of the gospel. And that truth has established things from hospitals to universities to some of the greatest thoughts and music of all time over the last 2,000 years. And that is now under challenge and threat by a third culture that denies all of that, that is so contradictory in its thinking and so confused and so lost in itself. And we want to rail against that and fight against that and we should stand against it but with the tools and methods of Christianity and of scripture and not of the world around us. That even if we go down in the end of that that there's some example that's set in such a way that continues to work in their head and begin to work in their mind that even like the soldier who stood at the foot of the cross that said surely he was the son of God even as he's lying there dead. That there's some witness to that issue. That our unity and our drawing together As a congregation in this season of time, your consideration for one another, your unity in this season has been something extraordinary. As other churches have been torn by their politics or torn by uh, their selfishness, you have chosen to consider one another. I bring to you now this question of what is it though that you identify at the core of things? I want to give you one last thing before I give you a final passage of scripture or so today. I want to go back and reach back into that first culture of that pantheon of gods and I want to draw an illustration out of that moment of time. Have you ever heard the phrase I haven't got a clue? And we sit here and say well you know someone they don't have a clue or I have no clue. And we look at the time and the word clue and we think that that's an insight or an idea that maybe points us to a solution. To be without a clue is to to simply be ignorant and I would argue that much of our culture is without a clue. I don't mean that derogatorily, I'm just saying they don't understand. As followers of Christ, we are supposed to have a clue. And let me give you an understanding of what this term means. The actual original spelling was C-L-E-W, not C-L-U-E. And a clue under this context actually meant a ball of twine. So if you had a clue, you had a ball of twine. How does this give us an understanding of this phrase? How does this apply to our conversation today of having a ball of thread? This goes back to that first culture thinking for a moment again. Then, You see, um, in the island of Crete, there was, according to the legend, a labyrinth that had been designed by a guy named Daedalus. This labyrinth was designed in such a way that whoever went into it would never be able to find their way out, and they would die. They would throw their prisoners in there. And in fact, there was an agreement that, that the king of Crete had with Greece because of an insult that had been done earlier that they had to send seven maidens and seven men to the island of Crete and they would be banished into this place either to be lost in starvation or more likely to encounter a creature called the minotaur. And the minotaur was a half-man, half-beast that would devour and kill anyone that came in. And finally, there's a hero that shows up as there does in most stories. The hero's name is Theseus. And the king's daughter, Ariadne, just falls in love with him at first sight. It's just the way it is. And she doesn't want to see him die in the the labyrinth. So she gives him at night a sword that he hides in his tunic as he's being tossed in there. But she also gives him a ball of golden twine, golden thread. And with his ball of golden thread, he ties one end to one of the pillars. And he continues to let it stroll out with him as he goes through the labyrinth. He seeks out the minotaur, and he kills the minotaur. And now he's stuck in the labyrinth, though, but fortunately, he has a clue. He has a ball of golden thread. And by tracing that thread, he makes his way back and out of the labyrinth rather than being killed or rather than dying from starvation. By having a clue, he's able to work his way out of the confusion of the labyrinth. I want to suggest to you this morning that as followers of Jesus Christ, we have a clue that goes beyond anything that that first culture ever understood, that we have something in the Word of God and in Scripture, that we have something in understanding of who we are in Christ that takes away our lostness and our confusion and the alienation that we have, and that when we come to that understanding, when we embrace Christ for the reality that He is, when that shatters who we are, and then we embrace who he is, that when our identity then is established there, everything radiates out from that. And now I understand what it means to be a spouse. Now I understand what it means to be a father. Now I understand what it means to be a son. What it means to be whatever role that I'm called to do and be. But it radiates from that center point. As we follow that golden thread that leads from Christ, then we find through the scripture it leads always back to Christ. And that draws all of us together in oneness, regardless of every other aspect that we're a part of. The very essence of lostness is not knowing who we are. What happens? after we're done chasing, after every other identity that we are told will resolve our sense of lostness and alienation, as we marry who we want, as we change our gender, as we take this job or that position or things, and we still find at the end of the day unsatisfied and more broken than we were when we began. And the things that were society's daughter, uh, um, beauties today, and, 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 and the thing that is the, the idol that's worshiped is suddenly gone away and we're left in the cold. Or we can follow this golden thread in Scripture to the person of Jesus Christ. Let that change who we are. Let our identity radiate out from that point in time. And then we join with a great crowd in the book of Revelations that says, At this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every. I want you to read these words with me from every what? From every tribe, people, and language every nation, every tribe, every people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb of God. And they're wearing these robes, they're wearing palm branches, whatever, but they cry out this loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God. Poor old Theseus of legend he just had a flimsy gold thread given by a girl that took his fancy and that took his that took hers but we have someone who gave their life for us we have the wisdom of scripture that has been handed down for thousands of years that has shown to be true that literally transformed the world and we're in a place in time where we're prepared to toss all that aside for the sheer rebellion of wanting to do things our own way or we can take all the great intellect all the great skills everything that's been given to us by our creator and I don't know Jordan Peterson's final story I don't know, I'm not holding him as an example except in that moment of time that great intellect and all those articulations seems to be shattered by the realization of who Christ is and if that is actually true for him then it's going to change his whole life and for those of us who claim that this is true for us Our methods should be different. And the way that we view one another and the way we view ourselves should be radically changed. It is a different way to identify than anything else the world has ever seen. And everything else flows out of that. And whatever labyrinth of confusion, whatever monsters we face, if we hold on to that golden thread, it leads us out To freedom. For he came to seek and to save that which was lost, even in the darkest labyrinth. So Father, as we come before you this morning and as we contemplate our own identity, as we contemplate those things that have our first loyalties that define every other facet of our life, for those of us who have made this commitment years ago, I ask and pray God that today would be renewal of that commitment. For those in this gathering who have never made that commitment, they find themselves lost and alienated. Then I ask God that today by your Holy Spirit that you'd speak to them and if they would be prepared this morning to repent of their sin, their rebellion, to accept that, that you did die on that cross for them and was resurrected again to prove that point that you are God, that their sins today would be forgiven. And this morning they could stand. Renewed. In this moment of time, on this day, we come before you, Lord. We come before you. Um, First time that song has been sung here, you guys picked that up pretty good. I think you guys have a clue. And I hope that as you continue on through your life, time that we have, that you continue to be led by that. Next week, we are going to shift to a personal sense of responsibility. By all means, if you are still a potential threat to someone, wear a mask. Or if you are concerned, wear a mask. Or if you have a bad case of acne that day, wear a mask. We don't care. Okay? Don't make any judgments. Let there be no division over these things. And I would leave you with this today, as we've read the last five weeks, four weeks now. Psalm 25, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. I would add that I find my identity. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth, the only truth. Teach me, for you are God my Savior. My hope is in you all day long. Father, I pray that you continue to shape us as a people. We pray for this nation. We pray for this world. But God, let it begin with our own understanding of who we are, people that once were lost, but now we're found. And then as we continue to explore what that means to be in Christ, to be one with brothers and sisters, let that shape our values, and how we behave, I pray. Even in a world that's increasingly hostile, I pray. Guide us in these things we ask. We thank you and we honor and praise you this day. In Jesus' name, amen.